3: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
5: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Sky. Sumnerprogram.com
3: Hey, welcome back everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My guest this hour is the author of You're Not the Boss of Me, Adventures of a Modern Mom. Her essays and criticism have appeared in the L.A. Times, the L.A. Review of Books, L.A. Weekly, and uh, hey,
1: Tom, I'm sorry. I have many introduce- others.
3: But oh, her new book is very different. It is a memoir called The Big Hurt. I wanted to just get that all out. Did you want to say something? I'm so
1: sorry. I interrupted you. It, I, suddenly, I thought you were introducing the wrong book. <laughs> I just kind of... Heart palpitation,
3: but I'm so very sorry. Ah, you're fine. Erica Schickel is her name, and she uh, Mm -hmm. joins me by phone. And this is um, uh, interesting because uh, you're the daughter, you're an author and essayist, and daughter of famed film historian and critic Richard Schickel. Um. And and I would expect that you would have grown up in Los Angeles, but instead it was New York.
1: Yeah, yeah. My father didn't move to Los Angeles until the mid-80s or late 80s. So although ours was a very bicoastal family, my mother was from Los Angeles.
3: So I had grandparents out here that I would, you know, come and visit every year. Was Was your mother in the biz, as they say?
1: My mother was, yes, she was a writer. She was a novelist um, and a magazine writer and the daughter of a film and early film, radio film and television writer, John Whedon. So my granddaddy wrote, you know, the Andy Griffith show and the Dick Van
3: Dyke show and all of that. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. Mm-hmm. I had Carl Reiner on the show a few years ago before he passed away. Oh, I
1: loved him, and I had a chance when I, as an actor, to work with him once and ask him about my granddaddy. And he was what a beautiful human being he was.
3: Oh, he he really was, and um, mm. and, and I I got to, I got to interview him for an hour. It was it was awesome. Mm, lucky you. That's great. Yeah. And and he uh, yeah and And he he won up me um, How's that? because I asked him, you know if people you know would recognize him you know from the old Dick Van Dyke show as uh, well, I was asking who they recognized him more as um mm-hmm. as Rob Reiner's dad or Alan Brady.
6: Mm-hmm. and
3: and he just went all hip on me and said oh no they remember me now from the ocean movies <laughs> that's true yeah and, and, he and,
1: really and,
3: yeah I, I mean and, and he had a come back there when i when i uh, interviewed him he was 91 92 something like that and um he, Sharp as attack, right? Was, it, yeah, he was talking about the next book he was working on and he was still mm-hmm. appearing in shows. I mean, right right up yep. till the very end. But yeah. this today we're gonna talk about Erica Schickel, not Carl Reiner. <laughs> this is a memoir, but it's it talks about some things that for most people would be very embarrassing. It talks about uh, Sexual predation and and
7: uh,
3: mm-hmm. um, you just you self describe yourself as a bad girl, and it makes me wonder, because you've written some some fun and, and irreverent things uh, for people, why you would take such a deep personal dive and share it with people Well
1: at first, that wasn't my intention. When I started writing this book back in 2008, it was my intention to write a memoir in the same sort of light, humorous tone that my first book had been written in. And I sort of identified as a humor writer, as we have just discussed. I come from a long line of comedy writers. So to me, that is the was the virtue I was pursuing. But as I looked at the story for the first time in 30 years, which... Um, the original story is about how I was sent to a bohemian prep school, boarding school in uh, Western Massachusetts at the age of 14. And um, eventually, in, a, in the spring of my senior year, I was seduced by a music teacher at that school. And when the school found out, um, he was fired, and I was sort of forced to expel myself. They couldn't legally expel me, but they denied me. You know, I was not able to talk to my parents or whatever, and I left sort of in the quiet of the night. And it was a story that had haunted me my whole life and and shaped much of my adulthood, my conception of myself, as you said, as a dirty girl. And then when I began to look at the story, it began to sort of morph. And I saw suddenly that what I was wasn't a dirty, naughty, bad girl, but I was in fact a very hurt and abandoned girl. And that hurt is really the thing that I'm trying
3: to address in this book. And, and thus the title, The Big Hurt, a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um but h- how did that impact you going forward? I mean, once you once you left uh Bohemia for the real world. Um what how did that set up how you felt about yourself and and what you did for work and and mm-hmm. your relationships with other people?
1: Well, um, it set me up in a number of different ways uh, for failure. <laughs> um, you know, I had this conception of myself as a, as a bad, rejected girl because of these multiple abandonments. In this, initially, my parents abandoning me into boarding school and then being kicked out. And then I went and lived with the teacher that summer, and then he abandoned me very cruelly. And so by the time I started college, I was so, uh, sort of traumatized by that, that I was both caught up in this desire to prove myself as a worthy person, that I'm really, I'm good and I'm worthy of love. And I'm going to show everybody by, you know, marrying the nicest, first nice guy I can find and having kids and being the best mom. And, and it was sort of a, a big lie, you know, and that, I, I, you know, I was running away from my feelings. And then secondarily, it had the effect of me making poor romantic choices, and most notably, as this story began to unfold and I was trying to write this book, which was used to be called Unsupervised, I met and became obsessed. With a local author who is a sort of notorious lothario and crime writer, noir writer, and who I call Sam Spade in the book. And it was the hurt of the story that I couldn't write that sort of I ran into his arms because it seemed like an easier choice, right? I was still unconscious. And it was through my relationship with him, which was the other half of the book. The, two, the book toggles between these two stories and connects them because, in fact, they are the same story. It's the story of a, a girl trying to exorcise her past and her trauma and her hurt.
3: More with author and essayist Erica Schickel straight ahead
2: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio
1: Show.
3: More with author and essayist Erica Schickel. Straight ahead, it's kind of interesting um, talking about that that film noir influence of of Sam Spade that the book is called The Big Hurt because that's almost that that has almost kind of a film noir. Feel to the title. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and in fact, um,
1: I reveal in the book that I took the title from him. On um, the second time I ever met him, you know, I asked him what he was working on, and he said, "I'm working on a memoir of my pursuit of my lifelong pursuit of women." And I said, "Oh, that's so interesting. What will, do you have a title?" And he said, It'll, "It's called The Big Hurt." And I thought. Fantastic title, you know. <laughs> and then he ended, and I, and I also thought I'm going to be in that book, and I had only just barely met him. So, and it turned out that I was in that book, and the book was dedicated to me, and it was called The Hillicker Curse. It wasn't called The Big Hurt. So, then a few years into writing it, I realized that that title was actually my title.
3: Now so. you had you had written and and met all kinds of deadlines what what took you so long to write this book it was like 12 oh. years or something
1: yeah well life did it you know first of all <laughs> oh, the relationship that old there was the, that one you know the relationship was a doozy um and it is described fairly in detail in the book but it you know he was um, a very broken man and followed to drug abuse, and I found myself having to, you know, be uh, being involved with a drug addict, and, you know, all kinds of horrible stuff happened between us. Um, On top of that, I had two children who were in middle school and high school, and they were in duress, and I was, you know, devoted to trying to, you know, help them. Um, I had two parents who died during the course of writing this book. So and one of a long illness and the other of a very, from a brief illness. So that occupied me. And then finally, just the, as I realized that the relationship I was in with this man spoke directly to the thing I was trying to write about in my memoir, I had to live through that experience and let it sort of settle and marinate a little bit before I could actually have the wherewithal to reflect on the experience with any kind of coherence.
3: When you left boarding school, did you return to New York or did you go to Los Angeles?
1: Oh, I went back to New York because I had already been accepted at Sarah Lawrence College. So I was supposed to be there in the fall anyway. And the teacher and I were trying to sort of figure out how that was going to work before he just ended up dumping me. Um, But um, yeah, I spent a few years in New York and I was, because I come from a family of writers, it was my dream to be an actor. So I was in New York doing theater and acting and stuff. And then finally I moved to LA in the end of 1988 to pursue more acting
3: and I have to ask about the, uh, about the music teacher, um, after, after you both left that, that school in Massachusetts, did he become a working musician or did he always sort of teach and do studio stuff? He
1: was a teacher, a teacher and a composer. He was not a
3: musician. I mean, he could play instruments, but, um... He was,
2: well, I just I wondered, because
3: when you said, and he dumped me, I just I just had this picture of every musician that ever just took off and went on the road. Mm-hmm, yeah, no. That, <laughs> I, that had to, not, I had to ask.
1: That was not what happened. Um, he, in fact, while he was I was at the Buxton School, um, he was teaching there and simultaneously teaching over at Bennington College in the music department. So when he got fired from Buxton, he just continued teaching at Bennington, and Buxton never called Bennington to tell them that they had a predator on their faculty, which is so often the case. You know, this is called passing the trash, and it happens in private schools, it happens in the Catholic Church, it happens in Boy Scout troops, where the predator gets the the victim gets under the rug, and the predator gets packed off to do whatever they do in the next place. When you said you so, got, he never suffered any. Oh, I'm sorry. I just was going to say he never he never suffered, as far as I know,
3: any anything from from the situation. When you say you got seduced by this music teacher, um, you know, it it almost sounds like you know like a normal relationship, but now you refer to him as a predator, was he in fact a predator? He was with me, I, you know,
1: I, he was a teacher, I was a student, there was a marked power differential. Def- differential. I was uh, two months past my 18th birthday but I was still the responsibility of the school and I, because of his actions, you know, I was deprived of my graduation I was um, expelled and alienated from all of my friends. The school had become my family over the four years. I mean, it was just—it was just terrible. Furthermore, he was married, or he was pretending. He and his wife had rings made and were pretending to be a married couple so that they could teach at the school together as a couple and share housing. So, you know, I mean, it was just bad at every level. Um, As for who he really was, this man, I can say that I honestly don't know. I never knew much about him. I never came to know much about him. But when I look back at the letters he sent me from that time, which I kept all these years, you know, these are the words of a narcissist, you know. He was love bombing me and projecting, and I was going to be some agent of, of... Change in his life. You know, he saw me as his heroine, which is, again, what the author in Middle Age did with me. You know, I kept getting, you know, put into this, into this sort of box, whether we're going to label that, you know, the femme fatale, or we're going to label it jailbait, or we're going to label it the other woman. You know, all of this, this stuff, under this experience, is essentially dehumanizing it is de- denying the self of the victim so yeah
3: did you I'm did you play that. a role in that I mean were you attracted to men that were likely to take advantage of you in that way um, because maybe because of your own self esteem issues
1: well, I was absolutely shaped. By my culture and my family, um, which at that time, if we can reach back that far to the late 1970s, was a time of sort of the post sexual revolution fascination with, you know, adult themes, available sex, child adult love was being reflected. In you know, ta- the popular culture in taxi driver, in pretty baby, um, you know, And I, I, it was normalized to me when, when this teacher said he was in love with me, uh, it didn't occur to me that, that there was something wrong with that, because also I had been observing teacher-student relationships in my very own school you know there were two teacher student relationships that i was aware of so i thought it was condoned and then on a deeper psychological level yeah i was i was i was looking for love i was an abandoned child who was desperate desperate for connection and for love and connection is only i was finding only in sex you know there
3: was what? Erica, at yes. what point did, uh, did you realize, wait a minute, um, these are bad people and I deserve better?
1: Honestly, it wasn't until 2008 when my old friend, D.J. Dowett, may he rest in peace, called me out of the blue, we friended, We found each other again after all these years on Facebook. And he had been in, at Buxton, he had been our go-between, the go-between between me and my teacher. He was one of my best friends. He knew us both very well. And he was the holder of our secret and passer of our letters. And he called me in 2008 to finally tell me his version, which was that something had been perpetrated, that I had been uh, abused and misused by both the teacher and the school. And all those years I had been carrying guilt about it. And suddenly, and at that time, too, my own two children, both girls at that time, and is now non-binary, but at that time I had two girls who were right up on the age I and my younger sister were when everything fell apart. So it was a mix of being, having my eyes opened and that sort of welling maternal instinct of like, would I send one of my children away to a boarding school right now? How could you even possibly do that? You know? So, yeah.
3: Was it the boarding school? It, it, it doesn't surprise me that the teacher was fired, but that you were manipulated into leaving is mm-hmm. it, it seems odd to me, but it seems odd to me now. Was it odd then mm-hmm. or or would any boarding school have acted similarly? Well,
1: it turns out that many boarding
3: schools acted similarly.
1: And that has been the focus of um, see that's what the I'm Boston wondering Globe about
3: because spotlight when you,
1: team yeah when has you done talk, a huge investigation
3: into this yeah when you talk about okay. the late 70s things were you know very very different then and yeah. and you know so I'm I'm trying to put this in some kind of historical context because. You know, as as you pointed out, a lot of institutions have done a lot of purging since then, and it's hard for people to imagine the school not taking your side.
1: Yeah, well, what ended up happening was when this, this Spotlight piece published um, in 2013, and I was on the cover of the Boston Globe talking about what happened to me, And, of course, the Globe had contacted Buxton and the teacher and so forth. And nobody really wanted to say anything about it. And Buxton never responded to me in any way about it. After all these years, I thought somebody would pick up the phone and apologize. And, you know, and, of course, they did not. Meanwhile, you know, these other private schools are, you know, rolling out under the same sorts of Scandals and, you know, terrible history and dealing with it much better, you know, Um, doing public apologies and having that up on the school website and owning, taking responsibility specifically and generally and instituting new policies and forms of redress. In the case of Buxton, there was. Finally, a group of alumni came together and wrote an outraged letter to the trustees asking for redress, and they sort of put together a sort of legalese letter, and now there's a fund to help people who might need therapy, but it does nothing to help people who have had 30 years of therapy already trying to deal with this, and nor did it contain any kind of specific apology to me or ownership of responsibility for what happened. So it's just been a
3: huge disappointment. Did you ever meet or learn about um, other young women who had experienced similar things at Buxton? Yes,
1: and in fact, when the Boston Globe piece came out, I was contacted by several um, alumni and also cur- an, a currently enrolled student at that time who had their own sort of horror stories to tell of, you know, of abuse of one sort or another, either between teachers and students, students and students. Um, and again and again, the school administration has not dealt with it in, in a sufficient manner, you know, and people are launching into their lives with a similar hurt to mine.
3: Mm-hmm. You subsequently found out that there were other women in your family who'd had similar experiences.
1: Yes. I mean, one of the things about this book is that, you know, know, these themes sort of echo over generations. Um, And in my family, I am the third generation of women in my family to um, become sexually uh, attached to an adult a teacher. So my great-aunt Frances, back in the early 1900s in West Seattle, uh, was seduced, courted, whatever, I don't know all the details, by her English teacher. And her family condoned the relationship, and she married him at the age of 16. And the marriage was over in two years. It did not last for obvious reasons. And then my own mother... Um, had an extended and painful uh, relationship with her professor. She went to Sarah Lawrence as well with her professor um, at Sarah Lawrence, a psychology professor, and his wife. She was involved in some kind of psychosexual triad with them that changed her for life and embittered her in a way that affected her parenting of me. And, you know, when, again, when I refer to the big hurt, this is what I'm basically referring to, you know, this sort of deep, almost epigenetic pain that gets handed down from mother to child where, you know, there's unresolved anger, there's trauma. And my mother's generation did not have the tools to deal with that. I feel very fortunate to be alive in a time where we are as a society trying to parse some of this
3: and address it. When you were writing this book, you mentioned uh, Sam Spade as is, is sort of a uh, thinly veiled pseudonym. Um, mm-hmm. Did you change the names of people in the book or did you name names and and have you gotten feedback from people that that you've characterized in the book
1: the only real names that are in the book are the living who have given me permission and the dead um everybody else has a pseudonym and sam spade was a tricky situation for me because it takes but a single google search to find out who he is um, while we in the four years that we were together on and off um he crowed my name he published two books and crowed my name to every media source and every audience he had so it, it, that was his doing not mine and so Uh, The reason I gave him a thinly disguised and slightly humorous pseudonym, um, it was because I just didn't want, the story isn't about him. And, you know, and celebrities have a way of sucking the air out of a book. Um, So, and I didn't want my book to be about him. It's not about that. It's about how that relationship, how he and I both had our own version of a big hurt. His wife, I mean, sorry, pardon me, his mother was famously murdered when he was 10 years old mm. and so his desire loss, the loss of his beautiful redheaded mother and the loss of my beautiful redheaded mother were sort of the compelling factors in our shared trauma bond it was very powerful stuff
3: this is is um really a fascinating story eric and i'm um curious about um oh i know what it was i I wanted to ask you because we're we're getting close to the end of our time and uh, i i just wondered one critic uh, described you as irma bombeck in leather are you comfortable with that characterization
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, that was referring to my first book, um, you know, which was a very sort of like sassy, sexy mommy story, you know, rebellious mommy story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I am a truth teller. I, I, I'm not afraid of it. And, and I like words and I like to crack wise, and, you know, I like to get the message across in a way that is, uh, informative and entertaining and the best feedback i've gotten on this book is that it's just a stone page turner. I mean it is just a gripping read and <laughs> you know and that's what that's i wanted. Great. I wanted to so i wanted the big hurt to not hurt while you were reading it. So,
6: so
3: what's next Erica? Is there another book in the works or um are, are you already kind of busy the next 12 years?
1: Well, there is another book in the works that I hope will take only a fraction of that time to write. Um, You know, The Big Hurt was was the big story of my life. And so it leaves in its wake the question of, like, what is burning inside of me to say in the next book? And, you know, I feel like I found my subject in terms of, you know, write books that give people a feeling of connection to each other and their own experiences. So that's sort of where I'm focusing my vision for now, both as I promote this book and start writing the next one.
3: Well, Erica, I really have enjoyed talking with you, and and I think your candor and uh, honesty in this book and and in everything you do is uh, laudable. Thank you. It's been a pure pleasure talking with you. Um, Erica, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I sure do. It's
1: erikashickle.com, which is easy if you know how to spell my name, E-R-I-K-A-S-C-H-I-C-K-E-L. I I mean, you're in the Midwest. It's a Germanic name. Um, You can find me uh, more easily, Shickety, on Instagram, Um, and I'm Erica Schickel on Twitter and Facebook.
3: Well, Erica, thank you so much, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Tom. All right. Bye. Bye. Again, the name of the book is The Big Hurt, a memoir by uh, author and essayist uh, Erica Schickel. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. To the right, thing hey, and stay inside with me. You
0: might just save the line, or two, or three, or four, or maybe. I Is silly I think all that they look
1: has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements?
8: If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. OK, all right.
1: And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month?
0: Does your office have a website for
1: that? OK, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints For your connection to consumer protection.
3: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the
1: Bickerson.
7: Like most married women, Blanche Bickerson is a romanticist. Having talked poor husband John into taking her on a second honeymoon, three o'clock in the morning finds Mrs. Bickerson in the lobby of a small hotel at Niagara Falls. Exhausted and bleary-eyed from the long drive, John Bickerson unloads the luggage outside as his wide-awake wife talks to the night clerk. Let's listen.
8: It doesn't really matter about the room as long as we have a nice view of the falls.
7: Yes, ma'am.
8: I'll bet you don't remember me.
9: No, ma'am.
8: Well, I wouldn't expect you to with all the honeymoon couples you meet. I was here seven years ago.
9: Is that so? Yes. Well, better luck this time.
8: Oh, we're still married to each other. We're just having a second honeymoon. Do many people do that?
9: No, ma'am.
8: I wonder why.
9: I wouldn't know, ma'am.
8: Are you married?
9: No, ma'am. Arthritis makes me walk this way. Will you please sign the register?
8: Oh, I'm sorry. Last time we were here, we had to wait two days for a room. We stayed in a motel in Buffalo. Oh, here you are.
9: Thank you. Is that Bickerson?
8: Yes. Didn't I sign it right?
9: Yes, ma'am. Mrs. John Bickerson and husband. Here's the key, room 318. There's the automatic elevator over there. We don't have any bellboys at night.
8: Oh, that's all right. I'll go out to the car and get my husband. John? Where is he? He's not in the car. I wonder if he took the luggage out of the trunk. Good heavens! John, get out of that trunk, you darned fool! John, John! John!
7: Blanche! 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 Shut the door. There's a draft.
8: Come out of that thing.
7: All right, all right, all right. Don't pull. Ow! My hand!
8: Oh, serves you right. Pick up that luggage and straighten yourself up. Ow. I don't want you to go in that nice hotel looking like a -a ragamuffin.
7: It's a nice muffin, um... Grab a couple of these bags, will you, Blanche?
8: No! It wouldn't look right on our honeymoon. Come on! Oh, my back.
7: Where's the bellboy? We don't have any at night. Are you the clerk? Yes, sir. Where's the register? I I want a room with a bed.
8: I've already signed it. You've got a room.
7: Good. Where are you going to sleep?
8: Come on, John. Stop dragging your feet.
7: I just drove 2,000 miles for a second honeymoon. Lead me to my room.
8: You had to talk like that in front of the clerk.
7: Oh, let me sleep, will you, Blanche?
8: I'd just like to go one place with you that you didn't embarrass and humiliate me. You've been unbearable since we left home. Keep going. In here? Yes. Pull the bags in so I can shut the door.
7: No windows? No nothing? How much do they get for this broken down room?
8: This is the elevator.
7: (laughs) Oh, well, push the button or something and get it started. I can't keep my eyes open another minute.
8: I was afraid this would happen. I'd hope that going on a second honeymoon would bring us closer together.
7: Can't get much closer than this, unless you throw the luggage out.
8: Every time I want you to be romantic. You're so distant, John. What is keeping us apart?
7: The brown suitcase. What floor are we on? I'm sleepy.
8: You're always sleepy. When you're not sleepy, you're humiliating me. I'll never be able to face that night clerk in the morning.
7: You won't have to.
8: Why not?
7: There'll be a day clerk. Which way is the room?
8: I don't know, and I don't care. I'm going to stay in the elevator.
7: Oh, come on, will you, Blanche?
8: Well, say you're sorry.
7: I'm sorry. Now, where's the room?
8: right in front of you. Three eighteen.
7: Well, open the door before I collapse. Thank heaven, I got to get some sleep.
8: Well, put the lights on. Don't stumble around in the dark.
7: Don't want to open my eyes. Just aim me at the bed and give me a shove.
8: I'm not going to let you sleep until you undress properly and unpack the luggage.
7: Oh, Blanche, why'd you have to bring so much stuff?
8: You've got as much stuff as I have.
7: I have not. All I brought was my toothbrush and my overnight bottle.
8: You and that bourbon. You wouldn't take five steps away from home without it.
7: Well, I can still remember. What happened when we got snowbound in that cabin?
8: That wasn't so terrible.
7: Oh, not much. I had to live for two weeks on nothing but food and water.
8: Don't throw my things around like that.
7: There's no closet. Where shall I put these dresses?
8: In the drawer.
7: Where do you want these drawers?
8: In the dresser. Fold up your pants neatly and put them under the mattress. Okay. Well, take them off first. John, what a fool I was to think you'd changed the second honeymoon was just as big a mistake as our first one.
7: Oh, no, it wasn't.
8: I'm so sorry you made me go on this trip that I could just die.
7: I didn't make you go. You shanghaied me. even tried to get me to marry you again.
8: Was that such an unreasonable request?
7: Yes. It isn't legal.
8: Why not?
7: A man can't be punished twice for the same crime.
8: Oh, that's too bad about you. How you shamed me in front of all my friends. And after I sent the invitations out, too.
7: Well, I wasn't going to have any formal a wedding and put out a lot of dough to feed your hungry friends and their squalling brats.
8: There wouldn't have been any brats there at all.
7: How do you know?
8: Because I said plainly on the invitation, Mr. and Mrs. John Bickerson will be married March 9th, no children expected.
7: Put out the lights.
8: I'm never going back to that horrible apartment we live in. I'm going to sit here and stare at the falls forever. Wouldn't hurt you to look at them either, John.
7: I see them every day on the shredded wheat box.
8: How can you be so cynical? I'm glad I have a little romance in my soul. Mm. Just the sight of those falls brings back memories.
7: Mm, uh,
8: yeah. Sit up, John. Look at that cascade. Doesn't it remind you of something? Yeah. What, John?
7: I think I left the water running in the bathtub.
8: John! You didn't!
7: Okay, I didn't. Good night, Blanche.
8: I never should have trusted you to lock up. Now, I'm really worried. Did you close all of the windows?
7: Close the windows. You didn't
8: leave any lights burning, did you? Uh, no. Did you leave food for the cat?
7: Left enough for a week.
8: What did you leave him?
7: A six-pound tin of corned beef.
8: Did you empty it into a plate? No. No. Well, how do you expect the cat to eat?
7: I left the can opener on top. Stop worrying about the cat. We
8: should have taken all the animals with us. Poor little canary locked in the cage. Cat can't get out of the house. And who is going to feed the goldfish? Oh, I'll bet they're terribly unhappy.
7: Oh, they're not unhappy. They're having a fine vacation.
8: They are not.
7: They are, too. When I left, the cat was fishing.
8: Fishing? Where?
7: In the goldfish bowl. He was using the canary for bait.
8: John Bickerson.
7: Oh, go to sleep. The canary and the goldfish are fine, and I wish the cat would drop dead.
8: Don't talk like that. I love that cat. When I get home, I'm going to enter him in a cat show.
7: What for? He couldn't win anything.
8: Maybe not, but he'd meet a lot of nice cats.
7: Go to sleep, will you, Blanche?
8: I'm not sleepy. Why don't you sit up and talk to me?
7: Blanche, people don't talk at four in the morning.
8: You talked until five o'clock on our first honeymoon. You kept reciting poetry and telling me how beautiful I was. Do you remember what you said, John? No. You told me your love for me was like a raging inferno. You said you had a fierce fire blazing in your breast like a live coal. What happened to it, John?
7: It's only a clinker now.
8: (laughs) How can you say such terrible things to me?
7: Blanche, I'm so sleepy I don't know what I'm saying.
8: I'd like to hear you say things like that to Gloria Goosby.
7: Can't I even go to Niagara Falls without Gloria Goosby?
8: The only reason you didn't was because she wouldn't have you. What? You proposed to her 15 times before you proposed to me. You big second fiddle you.
7: I never proposed to Gloria Goosby and you know it. And the next time I see her I'm going to punch her husband Leo right in the nose.
8: What have you got against Leo? He's a better husband than you are.
7: I'm sick of hearing That too. Leo Goosby is a cheap chiseling bum.
8: He is not. He's more generous than you.
7: Would Leo Goosby give you a new dress? No. Would he give you a new hat? No. Would he give you a mink coat? No.
8: Would you give me a mink coat?
7: No. Why should I give you anything? Leo wouldn't.
8: Stop screaming. You'll wake up the whole hotel.
7: Well, stop goading me. You want me to do nothing but fight, fight, fight.
8: No, I don't. All I do is ask for proof you love me, and you go into a tantrum.
7: Blanche, what more proof do you want? I tell it to you a thousand times a day. I raise a new crop of freckles to spell out I love you. I painted it on all the Burma shave signs.
8: Somebody's at the door, John. Honey, honey, honey. Honey!
7: Madam, this is not a beehive. It's my bedroom. What are people wandering around in the halls this time of night with? Don't
8: be so crabby. It's probably some nice little bride who can't find her husband. Maybe he's lost.
7: He isn't lost. He's hiding. Put out the lights, will you, Blanche? I've got a vile headache.
8: Nobody told you to yell your brains out. Can I? If you just stand here and look at the falls for a few minutes, Your headache will go away and you'll sleep fine. Mm. Where does all that water come from? I once read it goes over at the rate of 346,000 gallons a second. John? Yeah? Are the falls higher on the American side or on the Canadian side? I don't know. I'll have to find out in the morning. What a majestic spectacle. I'm convinced there's nothing in the world like Niagara Falls.
7: Except you, Blanche.
8: Really, John? Why do you say that?
7: Because you never dry up either.
8: Good night, John.